welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. March is Women's History Month, and our first episode of the month is dedicated to a remarkable individual who far too many people don't know, the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray. As we'll discuss, Polly Murray, who was raised in Durham, was a civil rights activist, a woman's rights activist, a lawyer, an Episcopal priest, and an author. Polly Murray was a person who was far ahead of their time. We are delighted to have joining us for this discussion, attorney Frischelle Scott, who is the managing director of the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice, which is located here in Durham. Attorney Scott, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're gonna start with first, having you share a little bit about your background and and as you do so if you could share how you became interested in Polly Murray. Sure thanks for the question April. Uh, so I graduated from Central School of Law in 2004. Uh, I would pass the bar <clears throat> later and then I began the search for employment uh, much like other attorneys, much like Polly Murray experienced, uh, finding the right position uh, was difficult. And uh, in the interim, I, I needed a job and uh, needed some work experience. And I ended up doing some volunteer work with the Durham Crisis Response Center and then also with Historic Stagville State Historic Site in North Durham. And I was specifically working on their African-American genealogy project, which was taking uh, the names and identities, uh, the, the information that was known about the enslaved community uh, there at Stagville and tracing, making family trees out of, out of that information. And I was deeply intrigued in this work because there were so many names and histories that were associated with modern Durham. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, uh, if I can somehow get uh, the, the contemporary American South, if I can get contemporary Durham to understand the, the history beyond just enslavement, but also as craftspeople, uh, as, as important people in the Durham fabric, if I, can, if I can make that connection, it's gonna be important and it's gonna improve our community and, and black America overall. So that's where I started and, and as a volunteer and really loved the work. Uh, you know, my father taught US history and, and black history uh, in the early days. And so I had just a deep love and appreciation for uh, the stories of, of many uh, black Americans who have who shaped our American culture and our identity. And eventually the, the site manager there would, would go to another position and I applied, just, I applied on a whim and there was 
there was real competition for the job and they hired me and thus begins my journey into public history and teaching uh, black history from my perspective, from the black American perspective uh, and, and really getting to shape or reshape a narrative. And from there, I would wind up at the, uh, be, I'd be promoted to the Charlotte Hawkins Brown Museum at the historic Palmer Memorial Institute right outside of Greensboro. That was exceptional work as well. Uh, and so I just, uh, I grew up, you know, learning about people like Shirley Chisholm and Fannie Lou Hamer. When everybody else is talking about, you know, Martin Luther King, my dad's talking to me about these people and Jackie Robinson, and I'm talking about Satchel Paige. And so learning about what we would now call hidden figures in American history, like uh, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, like Polly Murray, that, that just became my jam. And while I was at the Charlotte Hawkins Brown Museum, I, I got to work on uh, several construction projects to, to rehabilitate the historic campus. And during that time, I'll tell you that the administration for the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources looks very different than it does now. And so I did experience some frustrations in my work, uh, the way that I think many people encounter uh, frustrations in institutions and in hierarchies. And uh, it, it was in one of those moments of frustration that I, I received an invitation to be a part of a think tank to talk about the future of the Pauli Murray Center for History and Social Justice. And one, I only knew about think tanks through uh, shows like 60 Minutes who were always interviewing folks who were in high profile think tanks. And so the idea of I'm, I'm gonna go to a think tank, this is exciting to me. Uh, this was a little bit of an ego stroke of <laughs> being invited to a think tank. And so I, I went with just very minimal knowledge about Pauli Murray, to be honest. Uh, was given the book by Pauli Murray, Proud Shoes, the story of an American family to read as part of that. And I'll tell you that I was in a room full of women, uh, full of brilliant women, scholars, historians, uh, family members uh, of Polly Murray. And it was the most exciting time that I had spent in 10 years. Uh, when you are in a room full of uh, creative folks, uh, people who have scholarship to go along with that creativity uh, and you get to envision what history and what a historical narrative could look like when it's written by someone who's not part of the dominant culture. And by that, I mean white and male. You get something really exhilarating to sink your teeth into and something to get excited about. And I'm remembering in that moment, uh, we were being hosted at Moorhead Manor, uh, which is a bed and breakfast owned by an African-American mm -hmm. proprietor, Monica Edwards. Uh, so I'm in this black space talking about this black individual and talking about black history in this new form, this, this new approach. And it was, it was so exciting. And I, I was at that time then reinvigorated about working in the public history space and, uh, it would be not too much later that I would uh, strike out on my own and open up my own boutique practice and leaving uh, state historic sites. And 
I happened though to still be presenting at a conference in Austin, Texas about the Charlotte Hawkins Brown Museum. And it just so happened that the executive director and the chair of the Pauli Murray Center board were in the audience. They had no idea that I had left uh, State Historic Sites and they approached me and said, well, we need a lawyer, we think. And so uh, Mamie Webb Bledsoe, who's now one of the AVPs over at Duke University, and uh, Barbara Lau, who's the executive director, they took me to lunch at Elmo's. I'm, like, oh, I'm being wine and dine. I'm going to a, <laughs> to a lunch. And uh, that's, that's where it started. I was uh, their general counsel for about a year and a half, maybe two years. And then uh, when there was clearly an indication that construction was going to be ramping up at the Pauli Murray Center. There'd be some site development. They uh, they invited me to consider becoming the managing director because I had a background in uh, project management uh, for site development. I uh, had done a great deal of operations through my work with the state of North Carolina, and that's how I that's how I get in the door. And it's been Pauli Murray living, breathing ever since. You know, it's, it's amazing that uh, here in Durham, uh, so few people are aware of all of the contributions and accomplishments of uh, Dr. Lawyer, Reverend uh, Paula Murray. Uh, how, how do you explain this lack of knowledge about the things that she did, not only was here in Durham, but uh, around the country? Sure. Um, here's what I would say, Professor Joyner. The reality is that humanity, American society is ever evolving. Um, and the time in which Polly was working uh, and, and Polly was planting seeds for a future that Polly was, was probably not going to be able to experience. Uh, and so I have to say that the reason that people don't know or didn't know about Polly uh, was because of the people who controlled, and that's in past tense, the people who controlled uh, historical narratives and what stories got told, uh, what stories appeared in our textbook, uh, what stories were allowed to flourish, uh, and which stories were, were highlighted. Um, I think that there's also um, this, this subtext that uh, the contributions of African-Americans are somehow less than inferior uh, than, uh, than other contributions. And that's simply not true. Um, and so the Pauli Murray Center works to dispel some of those, some of those myths. Um, I think that when we, when we look at, at who received acknowledgement uh, of accomplishments, uh, even within the African-American community, they were largely male. And yeah. I mean, that, that goes on through, you know, the, with, the, uh, with the Black Panther Party, you have all of these women who are working alongside, not behind the scenes, they're working alongside their male counterparts, but we only really were highlighting males. Uh, and so I think that, and, and we're in a changed society now and in and, and a changing society where women uh, 
where uh, non-binary, uh, gender expansive folks are, are allowed, that we are permitting, that we are encouraging those stories to come forward. And Polly becomes one of those stories. And can you talk about, uh, and I, I will say, I was just absolutely amazed um, when I first learned of her and, and every time I study more about her, I, I'm just absolutely just amazed by what she was able to do and that I didn't know of her before. Um, and so we could spend hours and hours talking about her, but can you talk about some of the, the highlights in her, in her early life and the inroads that she made and that kind of foretold the activism that we would see as far as it related to um, activism related to, to uh, racial issues, women's equality issues. We'll, we'll start there for now. Sure, April, that's a, such a deep question, right? Because um, where do you start? And one of the places that I, I like to begin is that uh, Polly's family, uh, the family that she grew up with here in Durham, which included her grandparents and then her aunt Pauline, they set into motion or they set in Polly's foundation uh, this, some activism. And I wanna, I just wanna briefly touch on this. The house where Polly grew up uh, on Carroll Street, uh, in the rear is Maplewood Cemetery. And uh, Maplewood Cemetery, which is owned by Durham, uh, maintained, excuse me, by the city of Durham, there was water runoff going in, down the hill into the, the Fitzgerald's uh, family home for, for decades. And her grandparents wrote letters to city officials about the problem. They would eventually hire their own attorney to try to get some, some motion, some action by the city uh, to, to get the water to, to push away from the home. And all of that was to no avail. And I, I only wanna highlight that because Polly saw early on the actions of the adults of her caretakers taking action to right wrongs. So that's Polly's childhood is, is witnessing uh, the, and going to the correct, the correct channels. Um, I'm going to I'm going to write letters to the city officials. Um, when there's no response, I'm going to to sue the appropriate parties and try to get legal recourse. So Polly saw those actions early in life. Now, I think that we also have to consider that Polly went to the uh, went to Hillside High School here in Durham and graduated with high honors. And Hillside comes with its own history of, of folks who are. Uh, of making moves of, of teachers who were dedicated to their student success and to helping to shape Durham's black community into something uh, that, that people would be proud of. That you could say, I'm from Durham and as a black person, just really feel that sense of, of pride in your community. Um, and then uh, Polly would uh, go on to uh, Hunter College in, in New York. But all the while, Polly is writing. Polly is a prolific writer and really did believe in the power of words to, if not fully persuade, then to at least ask the question, to pose the question to the audience, to the reader, 
are, are we engaged in moral, ethical, legal conduct right now? And so I think that there are these, there are these moments in Polly's life, uh, these things that Polly witnesses that are injustices and that she wants to see corrected, uh, that she sees other people modeling what that would look like. Um, I think that when we think about um, Polly when she graduated, when, when they graduated from Hunter College and uh, tried to gain admittance to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to study sociology, uh, Polly was denied admittance uh, because of uh, because of their their race. Um, we see Polly end up at Howard Law School, and as uh, you know, she was the, the the top graduate in her class. And one of the perks that came with that was uh, supposed to be uh, uh, admission into a program at Harvard Law, and uh, Polly was denied on the basis of uh, sex. Uh, and so there are these there are these pivotal moments in Polly's life where Polly has followed all of the rules. Polly has followed all of the the course of, of action that we're told. If this happens, this is you, you follow this legal process. You you try to bring attention to the matter this way. Uh, Polly's working in a way that is absolutely being civil and isn't getting the the response. Uh, it's still still being faced with injustice. Right. Let me just uh, just cut in right here to uh, remind our listeners that this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we are talking about the uh, marvelous life of uh, Reverend Doctor Attorney Pauli Murray, and uh, we have uh, the uh, managing director of the Pauli Murray Center here with us uh, this uh, evening to uh, discuss uh, this uh, life and the many contributions that uh, Pauli Murray made uh, to Durham and to uh, this, uh, this country. We're going to take our break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we will be right back. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Legal Eagle Review. So, who was the great Polly Murray? Polly Murray was raised by her maternal grandparents right here in Durham, North Carolina. After moving to New York to further her education, she began her activism by sitting in a whites-only section of a Virginia bus, which violated the Jim Crow laws at that time. This occurrence, along with others, sparked her interest in becoming a civil rights lawyer. She then enrolled in Howard Law School, where she graduated first in her class. She was subsequently rejected from postgraduate work at Harvard University because of her gender. She later called restrictions such as these Jane Crow. Polly Murray was a 20th century champion for civil rights. She pushed for the equality of all people regardless of race, gender, sexuality, and religion. A few of her accomplishments include becoming the first person to receive a JSD or Doctor of the Science of Law degree from Yale Law School, founding the National Organization for Women, and becoming the first black woman to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. Polly Murray's contributions to the world at large deserve more recognition, and I encourage you to learn more. 
Again, my name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue our uh, conversation with Attorney Fitchell Scott, who is the uh, Managing Director of the Holy Murray Center for History and Social Justice. And we are talking about this uh, outstanding life, this legacy, uh, a boatload of accomplishments uh, that uh, that many of us are not uh, aware of as we begin the uh, celebration of uh, uh, Women's History Month. Uh, it's really kind of hybrid because we're moving from uh, African American History Month into Women's History Month. And around here, we do uh, African American History 365. Uh, so we're staying on top of uh, of everything. Um, you, you 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 talked about uh, the, uh, I guess the environment in Durham that kind of downplay uh, the uh, contributions and the accomplishments of uh, of, of of Paul and Murray, uh, the community that existed here, which was high profile. I mean, D- Durham has always been a high profile uh, market, uh, but she was bigger than Durham. Uh, she uh, was one of the, what I would call, teachers of uh, Ruth, Gader, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who went on to become a U.S. Uh, Supreme Court uh, justice. Can you kind of talk about uh, the impact and uh, interaction that existed between Paul and Murray and uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg as Justice Ginsburg was beginning her career and becoming the women's rights advocate uh, that she became. Sure. So just a a point of clarification, I don't want to say that Durham downplayed uh, Pauli's contributions. I think that Durham perhaps didn't yet recognize how far-reaching Pauli Murray's life would would be in Pauli Murray's activities. Because as you said, uh, Professor Joyner, Durham has a very rich history of of black success stories and the neighborhood that Polly Murray is coming out of the West End uh, can can boast that uh, the current mayor of Durham, Elaine O'Neill comes out of the West End. Uh, Mm -hmm. Professor Williams at at the law school comes out of the West End. Uh, Judge Drew Marshall comes out of the West End. So the West End is is producing. And I just don't think again that, that Durham, North Carolina knew the the expansiveness that would come with Pauli Murray. So let me just say say that. Uh, and then as to the relationship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Pauli Murray, I would want to point out that there were there were people that were working alongside Pauli Murray uh, in this work uh, before before Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes along. And uh, one of the people that comes to mind immediately is Dorothy Kenyon. And the reason reason that Dorothy Kenyon comes to mind, I want to I want to make sure that we talk about uh, Polly Murray not just working in a vacuum, but having uh, compatriots uh, who also understood the larger picture. Uh, I want to just make sure we we call those names. And Dorothy Kenyon's name comes to mind 
primarily because of the White v. Crook case out of Lowndes County, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I learned this case in your class, Professor Joyner, uh, and it's about jury selection and a jury of your peers. And it was only much later that I am studying that particular case and reading all the briefs that I see Polly Murray's name. And that, that was a case where the, the uh, a group of black women were, were challenging the Alabama law that excluded all women from, from juries in Alabama and by custom also excluded African-American men. And so Polly's writing the part of that brief for the Department of Justice that talks about both sex discrimination and race discrimination and the intersection of those two. And so it, I just have to preface the, the work of, uh, and the work that Polly and other people laid out as the framework for the work that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would be able to do later. Um, I think that the folks, many folks saw the, the RBG documentary um, and we all refer to, many of us refer to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg as the notorious RBG. And we recognize the work uh, that Justice Ginsburg did for women's equality, but we don't often talk about the backstory. And it was really only in those later interviews with, with Justice Ginsburg that, uh, that Polly's name comes forward, that, that she begins to speak Polly's name into the conversation and say, hey, because of this attorney, Polly Murray, I'm now able to, I had a framework, I had uh, an understanding of the, the constitutional law as explained by, as articulated by Polly Murray that allows me to advance some of my own cases. I, I, think, I think that that has to, be, has to be stated. There's a lot of legal history there that Polly Murray didn't get credit for during their lifetime. And it's only now again, because we have the lens that we have now that allows for us to see and allows and encourages folks to, to, to lift up folks like Polly Murray that we know these stories. Yeah, and that's an example of, of the, one of the points that you made, which is that Polly Murray was planting seeds for a future that she might not be able to, to see or fully realize or experience. Um, and that is certainly an example. Like she was much more forward thinking when it came to uh, the use of the 14th Amendment uh -huh. in challenging gender discrimination. Um, are there other examples, like when we think about in the context of, of race discrimination? Um, and you mentioned that she was you know, she went to Howard University School of Law. She was the only woman in her class. She graduated number one in her class, as you noted. Um, what was her thinking at that time as it related to uh, constitutional arguments based on challenging race discrimination? I would, I want to, to point out that there was there was this moment in Polly's life before entering Howard Law. Uh, after rejection from UNC Chapel Hill for uh, a degree in sociology and before entering Howard Law, uh, 
Polly is working for the, let me get this right, the Workers Defense League, which is part of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. And Polly Murray was sent to Virginia to help work on the case of Odell Waller, who was a sharecropper accused of first degree murder of the landlord, Oscar Davis. And it's in that context that she meets the Dean of the Howard School of Law. It's in that context that she has, you know, first touches with, with Thurgood Marshall. Um, and so Pauly is, is, is at that time really confronted with the issues of race and how race is going to impact uh, judicial outcomes of people that look like and share experiences similar to hers. And I believe that you know, at that time, the, the dean of the, the law school says, you know, if you're gonna be working on cases like this, you might as well go and study law. Uh, and so offers Polly, and Polly says, I'll, I'll go if I can get a scholarship. And she makes application, but forgets about it. And then a few months later, the dean comes back with, the, with that money for, for the scholarship. And Polly enters the, the law school. Um, and, and all of that is to say that Polly was around great legal minds and was an equal to those great legal minds. And so when we think about Polly's understanding of constitutional law, I, I, I almost hesitate to put this out there, but you know, Justice Scalia, former Justice Scalia, may he rest in peace, uh, was noted to be a strict uh, constitutionalist, like this is strict construction. I'm gonna read it this way and this is what it means. But I would have loved to see Justice Scalia and Pauli Murray go head to head on what those words with the punctuation because the commas matter, uh, what those words actually mean. I think that uh, Pauli understood uh, language and the language of the constitution far better than many jurists that we've seen on our highest court. Uh, I hope that answers your question, April. I just, Polly was a writer. Polly was a voracious reader like her grandfather, uh, like all the members of her family. Polly's reading comprehension is, is not in question. Polly understood the words and had the, the, the instinct to go into case history. Uh, Polly didn't, would just read a, a, a decision. Polly would read all the briefs and all the notes and would ask all the questions. And so Polly's understanding of constitutional law far surpassed that of many peers. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, to that, to that point, it, you know, not only her understanding, but her vision of what the future could be. And I think I remember hearing that you know, she predicted the overturning of um, Plessy mm -hmm. well before, mm -hmm. you know, some of those that were actually arguing Brown v. Board of Education saw the possibility of that. Yeah, April, it's uh, interesting. Uh, Polly wrote what is called now the, the Bible uh, for, for civil rights, and it was states' laws on race. And it was a compilation piece. Uh, it's, a, it's several inches thick, but it was all of the state's laws that regarded race in America. And it was 
on the back of, of that work by Pauli Murray that uh, Thurgood Marshall and, and his team were able to mount their, uh, their arguments in Brown v. Board of Education. There are lots of, there, there are several cases that happened before we get to the Supreme Court and Brown v. Board of Education. There are several cases before that. And we hear about those cases. Uh, if you wanna learn about those things, you can. But this book that Pauli wrote is lesser known. And the fact that Pauli's work helped to influence the strategy for how Thurgood Marshall's team would win that case is also lesser known. Nope. And I, I, so when I see the, we've all seen the famous picture of, of Thurgood Marshall and his team on the courthouse steps, you know, and in my mind now, I paint Polly Murray into the picture as well, because without Polly, that wouldn't have happened. And, and I want to say that there was a bet with a law school professor over at Howard for $10. I think that's how the story goes. Uh, that that Polly had the, the, the professor bet Polly this ten dollars, and uh, ten years later, uh, Polly's vision, Polly's prediction comes true, and the professor owes the, the ten dollars to Polly and and for Polly's work. Uh, again, that 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 foresight. Again, the idea that I just need to make this world one in which I could live in, even if I don't get to experience it. I've got to set up the framework. I've got to start building the bridge so that those who come behind me can have the experience of the American ideal that I may not have enjoyed. It's such a selfless act, I think. And uh, I, I think that that's part of what leads Pauli to later really uh, uh, lean into their faith as an Episcopal um, and become that, that first American, African-American Episcopal priest as a woman. Um, I think... Polly leans into her faith that all of the things that, that the Constitution says, all of the ideals that were taught about American society and civics classes um, from, from kindergarten, you know, doing the Pledge of Allegiance, Polly believes those things to be true and works towards that. And, and, and acted on them. Um, acted, absolutely. Clearly, I think that, you know, she was a product of her time uh, and worked in the lane that, uh, that she was given, but had a vision to move it further. But I was always impressed by her calmness uh, and her ability to be patient and thorough in the uh, presentation of whatever issue it was that she was dealing with. So can you kind of talk about uh, just her demeanor uh, as, as a person and then as a, uh, a scholar? which then led her into, uh, but I, I think we have to take our break uh, right now. So when we come back, we're going to uh, let you answer uh, that, uh, that question. Uh, stay with us, we'll be right back as we continue this discussion about uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Paul Lamont. Good evening, my name is Caitlin Chesney and I'm a current second year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law and this is your Community Spotlight event. The Human Relations Division of Durham's Neighborhood Improvement Services Department is proud to present the 18th Annual Women's Forum 
to celebrate National Women's History Month. Due to COVID-19, this year's event will be virtual on Zoom every Tuesday in March from 6 to 7 p.m. Each Tuesday, panelists will present and discuss a variety of themes, including physical health, mental health, education, and personal finances. You may find more information at durhamnc.gov. Again, my name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Spotlight event. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, where we are continuing our conversation about uh, Pauli Murray and the uh, Pauli Murray Center for History and Social Justice. When we took our break, I had posed a question about uh, uh, Pauli Murray's demeanor and her ability to deal with the uh, racism, uh, the uh, sexism, uh, and uh, homophobia, really, that uh, existed uh, during her time. And I was uh, asking if, uh, if she could kind of des- describe uh, that uh, demeanor and how she was able to survive during those times with the kind of forward thinking uh, approaches of the law and even of religion uh, during that time without uh, losing uh, her herself or her self-control. So I, I want to say that I think many of us in, in a modern society when faced with the kinds and the frequency uh, of, of insults to dignity that Polly faced would have reacted much differently. Um, one of the things that I just have to put out there is that Polly was Polly was joyful. Polly was was funny. Uh, Polly had had a humor and a wit about about themselves that uh, we don't often hear. Uh, but as far as the the calmness and the demeanor, I would attribute that again to that foundation in the family. Uh, The Fitzgerald and Murray families in Durham were well regarded. Her grandfather and uncle were well respected entrepreneurs, brickmakers here in Durham. And so, and her, 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 her aunt Pauline who would later adopt Polly was a school teacher over at Lyon Park in Durham. And so there was a certain um, there was a certain carriage that Polly was expected to to take, right? So that they uh, they would present themselves uh, as a member, a respectable member of of the family. I can't say that without also pointing out the influence of respectability politics uh, in that era. And so I think that you know. Polly's upbringing suggested that Polly had to present themselves in a particular manner. That's that's one point. Then the other is that uh, Polly's approach to life and to the the bodies, the authorities that were challenging uh, her humanity uh, was to take that civil approach. Uh, I think about the the uh, the incident uh, in I believe it was 1940 uh, with the uh, the bus coming from uh, the north down to Durham for I believe it was the Easter holiday and yeah. uh, Polly had a friend who had a hurt back and when they crossed the Mason Dixon they had to 
moved to the back of the bus and to a broken seat. And Polly just saw this as being unfair and there were, there were empty uh, seats that weren't broken just ahead of their row. And so Polly moved to, she and her friend of that, that seat and then they were uh, similarly uh, arrested. And I think Polly understood that in that era, if you were out, if you were showing too much emotion, if you were aggressive as a person of color, that was an almost an automatic death sentence, whether by the hands of, of the police or by the, the white community. And so there, there are the, these ways in which, and I, I think it's important that young folks understand that it wasn't that uh, older generations were uh, lackadaisical or accepting of injustice or accommodationist. It's not that. These were points of survival. And so Polly's yep. demeanor was uh, in part because of family and, and, and how you present yourself. And then also a, a, a self-preservation. Um, you must present as calm. Uh, you must present as rational or else you will not be heard. Uh, on, on top of the fact that you are a, a perceived as a woman and you are a person of color. Uh, so I think we have to put that into the, into the equation too, Professor Joyner, uh, that we're talking about an era mm -hmm. where when being an outspoken black person could get you killed, Polly chose to live to tell the stories. But that also brings up though, the, the you know, kind of juxtaposition of her writing Right. And and that she was fearless in in her written work. And you've mentioned that she was, you know, um, uh, someone who wrote who can you talk about, um, I think, what she labeled like her hot letters and and how that allowed her to develop a relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt and their friendship and how she was very um, proactive in her writing. Uh, Polly's writings, Polly would take uh, holidays uh, like Memorial Day, July 4th. Uh, Polly would take those types of holidays to write letters uh, of, uh, that, would, that would impact society uh, to all the officials. That, that was Polly's course of action. And it was after the rejection from uh, UNC, where they had just given uh, uh, FDR a uh, an award for his his work at reconciliation and uh, efforts to to end segregation. Uh, so UNC had just given FDR this award, while at the same time rejecting Polly Murray from admission on the basis of race. And Polly was like, "Hold up." Uh, your words, President Roosevelt, don't exactly align with the institution that I was just rejected from. I'm going to send you a letter, and while I'm at it, I'm going to CC your wife. Uh, and, and that is uh, what started the relationship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Polly Murray. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt would brand, what would call Polly Murray a firebrand because Polly was not afraid to state the case in written form. And I, I have to call attention to the letter that uh, has reached uh, into the, to the public consciousness today 
uh, the letter that uh, Pauli Murray wrote to President Nixon when President Nixon had the, uh, the opportunity to appoint someone to the Supreme Court. And Pauli Murray writes, uh, why not me? I'd like to throw my name in the hat. And then lays out, I think it's like a 14 or 15 point, very eloquent and persuasive set of facts that show the qualifications that, that, that Pauli Murray has to at least get a nomination. And I just have to say that Pauli's letters were not, uh, they were not, they were not ag aggressive in the way that we think. They were not confrontational. They confronted the issue, but not confrontationally, yeah. not in an aggressive or disparaging way. It was, uh, it was a, a challenge to, to what you're saying, and I'm going to set it out almost in a issue, reasoning, analysis, and conclusion. I mean, Pauli's written words were set out that way. And you, you can't read one of Pauli's letters uh, to these public officials with, in my mind, I can't read them without seeing the Iraq in my mind. I just, <laughs> I can't do it. And I'm like, yeah, Pauli was brilliant and was writing in a way that, that the audience, and that's gonna be typically white males who were in the positions of power in a way that they had to accept the words that they, in a way that, that was, uh, was familiar to them. Uh, and so that's how Polly would set out, set out the arguments in letters. And Polly didn't shy away from the tough topics, but would do so in a way that was indisputable. Can you talk about uh, Polly Murray's decision to become an Episcopal priest? <sighs> Not well, April, if I'm honest. Um, I, Polly grew up as an Episcopal and uh, went to church with, with the family uh, on a regular basis. Um, I believe this is, I'm, I'm going to speak from Frischelle Scott's opinion, uh, based on what I've read, Polly's words, um, and how I interpret Polly's decision to go in that direction. Uh, Polly has this, by this time that Polly's entering seminary, uh, Polly Murray has a long list of accomplishments. Polly has overcome, uh, and has made made great, great gains and contributions. But society is still not there. Society is still not uh, accepting. They're not, um, they, they haven't yet seen the light the way that we have today. Uh, and so I believe for me that Polly was looking toward their faith to make sense of the gap, the disparity in what the ideals are and um, frustration perhaps with, uh, with the, the speed, uh, with the, the timeline of, of getting to that American ideal. And I think that, that Polly was looking, looking toward faith for, for a way to reconcile what was and what should be 
when I read Pauli's sermons, they, many of them are not your, they're not your standard sermon uh, with, uh, with, your, with your scripture. Uh, it's not that. Pauli is making social and political commentary from the pulpit and is talking about uh, gender and sex discrimination from the pulpit and not just locally or nationally, but also globally. And uh, it's while Paul is in seminary that uh, Paul is, is going up to Union Theological, which is uh, 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 further up in New York City and is studying black theology, black liberation theology. And you see that thread of influence be, uh, start to come through some of the sermons as well. Uh, I, again, I don't think that I can speak well about Pauli's decision. I'm only using you know, my lens. I would invite you to talk to Reverend Stephanie Yancey uh, and some others, uh, Reverend Her uh, uh, Hershey over at St. Augustine University uh, about, about Pauli's, uh, Pauli's journey into leaning into our life of faith. Yeah, and you know, it's, it it's interesting that, you know, I, I think that's another example of her fearlessness, right? There, there were no African-American women Episcopal priests at the time that she entered seminary. There were very few women Episcopal priests. And, you know, she's got, as you mentioned, even before this particular journey, she had a long list of accomplishments. And it's just another example of, um, you know, her not being content with the status quo and, and being able to see so much more uh, in terms of possibilities and what the future could hold. Absolutely. But was, but was she choosing to become an example by doing that because she didn't have to? You know, Professor Joyner, that's a question that's been posed to me in a couple of different ways uh, over the last few months. Did Pauli Murray know uh, was Pauli Murray consciously making these decisions to become um, a role model, to become uh, the, this, this icon uh, in American history that we would recognize today? And I don't think that Pauli had that kind of, not that Pauli didn't have that kind of foresight, but Pauli didn't have that kind of ego attached to the work. I I don't think that Polly was setting out to, to purposely challenge the Episcopal Church. I think that Polly just recognized that I am Polly Murray and this is an important part of my identity. And it's so important to my identity that I wanna take it as far as I can. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't an intentional, I don't think, or, or a, a political statement. I don't think it was a social statement at the time. Now, that said, when we look back at the, the paperwork for the diocese, for the Episcopal diocese, uh, and uh, when Paul is being named an Episcopal priest, the, the template that they used all has he. Uh, it acknowledges he, uh, is being admitted to the diet to the as a priest on this date, and he 
uh, has all of the, the rights and privileges and he, and so Polly's form has marked out he every place and put she or her. And so when I look at that piece of primary source material, I have to, I have to then question my own uh, interpretation and say, well, no, I don't think Polly was doing any of this you know, intentionally. But then when the paperwork is presented, uh, that paperwork is a statement to the mm-hmm. Episcopal Church that says, we're here uh, and we will, we as women are to be included in, in this faith tradition. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and, 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 and my, my thinking was that, you know, that in the absence of women moving mm-hmm. in the church and her having the ability to uh, break open some barriers, that it became, uh, well, why not me? Okay. And, you know, and, 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 and I can open this door. And if I open this door, okay. others will follow. Okay. And, and, and that's the sense that I kind of picked up from her, from her life, not only as it related to becoming uh, a, a priest, but also in other areas you know, of, her, of her life, uh, that she was stepping in to a space to say, I'm in this place now. Absolutely. When you, when you put that framework around it, Professor Joyner, absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change course and say, yes, Polly was asking, why not me? And I think uh, the, the, the letter to Nixon is a, a, a good example of that, of Polly saying, well, why not me? I, I'm qualified. Uh, and I, I think that when we put that uh, with the, the Episcopal Church, uh, Polly has reached all the credentials, has met all the credentials, and is also then saying, why not me? Why not women? You're right. You're right, Professor Jordan. Thank you for that perspective. You mentioned uh, Polly Murray's identity, and and one of the things that uh, when you start studying her, you realize, or them, I should say, um, that there was fluidity in terms of gender identity. And again, I think it's an example of how they were ahead of their time, right? Kind of recognizing and not feeling, you know, feeling certain, certainly some constraints as far as what society was placing upon them. But can you talk a little bit about uh, their um, steadfastness in uh, seeing themselves in a progressive way in terms of gender, gender identity? I'm going to read to you some words of Polly. And it's a letter from a young Polly Murray to Aunt Pauline. And as a reminder, Aunt Pauline was responsible for raising Polly. And uh, Aunt Pauline was uh, the teacher at Lyon Park and would, would refer to Polly Murray as my, my little uh, boy girl, okay? And said, you, you can wear pants and you know, run around, but on Sundays I need you to be in a dress and looking the, the, the appropriate way, okay? But I think that Aunt Pauline was the first person in Polly's life to say, you're just, my, you're just Polly um, and I love you. I accept you. And so Polly would then, I think, have the, the freedom to explore uh, gender identity and expression throughout their lives. Those words around claiming and naming identity. I don't know whether I'm right or whether society or some medical authority is right 
I only know how I feel and what makes me happy. This conflict rises up to knock me down at every apex I reach in my career. And because the laws of society do not protect me, I'm exposed to any enemy or person who may or may not want to hurt me. And I think that as Polly is moving throughout their lives, uh, they are grappling with how do I show up whole, but do so in a safe, in a way that's safe for me. Because if I show up in this expression that, that is comfortable, that, that is a, a, an, honest, an honest expression of myself, I may be harmed. And I don't know where that harm might come from or when it might come. Uh, and so I think that Polly Murray is forced to, uh, to work within the constraints of, of society at that time. I think that uh, Polly is given some guidance around what's permissible and how to, how to um, uh, appear, quote unquote, normal. So as not to raise suspicions um, in, in a time when it would not have been safe to be out and proud. Does that answer your question? Yes, it, it does. And, and I think that, you know, underscores why it's so important that we learn and study about Polly Murray. There are so many lessons and takeaways when we look at her legacy and, and the work that she did. Um, and I think it would be really comforting for those who are dealing gender identity issues, for those that are dealing with um, issues of race discrimination um, within the country and dealing with issues of disparities based on gender. I mean, there are so many powerful lessons that we can learn from Polly Murray. And unfortunately, we're, we're at times so we're going to have to end this discussion just for now, but we would absolutely love to have you back because there's so much more to talk about um, as it relates to Polly Murray. And we want to talk more about your center and the great work that you all are doing there. Um, but thank you so much for taking your time and sharing this wonderful history with us. Thank you, Professor Dawson, Professor Joyner. I appreciate the invitation. I'd welcome an opportunity to come back and talk about all the things that we didn't get to talk about today. Absolutely. So we would like to thank Rochelle Scott, who is the Managing Director of the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice, which is located right here in Durham. We'd also like to thank you, as always, for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.